Good morning. Boy, I'm impressed. I think you are too. That you were able to get here and get up and get the right time. That's good. This is seven, uh, almost uh, eight o'clock in the old time, so you've done well. I want to encourage you this morning to use your fill-in-the-blank listening guide that you should find in your worship folder. It'll help you follow along as we study. We are at a place in our study of the Lord's Prayer where I want to pause and take some questions that you have turned in about a month ago, questions that you have had about prayer. And so this Sunday and probably next Sunday, maybe one more, we'll see, uh, we want to look at some specific questions that this church family has about prayer. We have been studying in Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer, but it's also recorded in Luke 11. And in Luke chapter 11, verse 2, when it's recorded there, it's a different occasion. Jesus apparently taught this more than once to his disciples. And in Luke 11, verse 1, and the title of this morning's message is Prayer, I have a question. And um, as we come to verse 1, the Bible says, Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. Let's pray together. Father, we pause before we go into our study because we cannot understand your truth apart from your help and so Holy Spirit you are welcome in this place and we invite you here as our teacher the promised one who would teach us and call to our remembrance everything that Jesus taught and so we need you as our teacher today and we pray father that as we open your word as we consider these questions that the truth would be planted deep in our hearts Father, forgive us for the many times that we have gotten up and gone through our day and gone to bed and never once spoke to you. Forgive us, Father, for abandoning the incredible privilege that you have given to us to come into your presence. We pray that you would strengthen our hearts, deepen our faith, stir our souls, so that increasingly, Lord, we would not only practice prayer, but we would be devoted to you in our prayer times. And we ask this, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. This is the only question the disciples ever asked Jesus. It's the only thing he, they, he was ever asked by the disciples, specifically, to teach us this, this thing. They never asked him, Lord, teach us to perform miracles. Lord, teach us to cast out demons. Lord, teach us how to heal the sick. Lord, teach us to do these miraculous things. They had made a connection between Jesus' excursions where he would disappear and he would pray in the morning or in the evening or all night long. They made the connection between his prayer life and what was happening in his daily life. And so this was a specific occasion where he had been off praying and when he came back, the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And so we have been studying the Lord's Prayer from that vantage point. And we have seen that what Jesus gave us was not a piece of liturgy, simply words to recite as a congregation on Sunday morning. 
But he was actually giving us an outline of how to pray and what to pray about. And so if you've not been here for that study, I encourage you to go online, go back, and you can uh, reconsider that study. But we're at a place where about a month ago, I invited uh, some of you to jot down some questions. And I say some of you because I did it in one hour and didn't do it in the other hour. And this morning, when, um, when we have the little tear-off tabs on your worship folder, when you tear that off, if you have a question about prayer that you would like to throw into the mix, I can't promise you I'll get to it, but if you jot that question down and drop it in the offering plate when it goes by, uh, we'll, we'll take a look at that as well. But I've been getting questions, and people have been sending them in. I've gotten some by email. Um, a couple of you have texted questions to me, and... And then we had some that were turned in. Before we look at three of those questions this morning, I want us to just kind of pause a moment and, and I want to issue a kind of caution before we look at those questions. And let me do it this way, a couple different ways. Um, a man once bought a donkey from a traveling preacher. And as that preacher traveled, he would pray. And so the donkey took commands based on the preacher's prayer life. And so the preacher told him it's very simple to control this donkey as he handed the reins over to this man that had just bought the donkey. He said, if you want the donkey to go forward, simply say, hallelujah, and the donkey will go forward. When you want the donkey to stop, and this is how he would do he would pray, pray, pray. When he got ready to his destination and he was through praying, he would say amen. So he said, when you want the donkey to stop, say amen. Man said, got it. So he gets on the donkey. He says, hallelujah. Donkey starts moving along. And it's going really well. And they travel, and they travel, and they travel. And then the donkey's going in the same direction towards a cliff. And he says, whoa, donkey. Nothing happens. He can't remember how to stop the donkey. He says, Bible. Nothing happens. He says, church. Nothing happens. He says, stop! Nothing happens. So finally he prays. Dear God, would you please make this donkey stop moving towards the cliff? Amen. And right when he said amen, right at the edge of the cliff, you, you know what happened. The donkey stopped. And the man was so relieved, he said, Hallelujah! Sometimes prayer can be viewed by you and me as something mechanical, where if I just say the right words, if I, can, if I can utter the right words, if I can say it the right way, kind of like a formula, then God's going to hear me, and we can't ever let prayer become mechanical like that. I've had the privilege several times over the course of my life to visit Niagara Falls uh, outside Buffalo, New York, and several times growing up, and then Gail and I have been there, and we've had opportunities to visit. And typically, what you want to do when you visit a place like Niagara Falls is you want to eat at a restaurant that overlooks the falls. It has a big picture window, and you want to get a table by that so you can look at the falls. And, and so when you go and you see that, it's a pretty awesome sight. You have the Horseshoe Falls, Canadian Falls, and they're massive. Millions and millions of gallons per second going over this precipice, and then you have the American Falls, this magnificent sheet of water that's going across 
next to it. And one of the things I've noticed is that we could sit there and we would watch the falls and we would be kind of awestruck looking at the falls. But the waiters and the waitresses and the busboys in the restaurant never looked at them. Never looked at them. I might get up and walk over to another point at the picture window to see something you know, more clearly, but the waiters and the waitresses, they never looked at it. Never even paid attention to it. And sometimes if you and I aren't careful, we're kind of like that when it comes to prayer, is we go to pray because we need something. We approach God because we're in trouble, and well, we should. Nothing wrong with that. But we need to understand that the greatest thing that you and I must always keep in mind about prayer is who we're talking to. And never lose the sense of wonder that we have the opportunity to go into the very presence of God in his throne room and talk to him. And it is a great privilege. And so whenever we discuss these questions, please keep that in the back of your mind. Praying is simply talking to God who is a person and it is a relationship that you and I have with him. That being said, you've turned in some great questions. Let's look at three of them today. Here's the first question. At times when I am broken and feel unworthy, how do I approach the Father when all I have are tears and feelings of despair? Have you ever felt that way? Either there's a great crisis or burden or hurt in your life, or you have done something that has created a crisis, a hurt, or a burden in your life. Have you ever felt that way? And you wonder, how could God, who is holy, how is God, who is so perfect and pure, how can I go and, and speak to a God like that? I want to call your attention to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. And this was actually a, a verse that um, some men and I studied on our Thursday morning men's Bible study uh, last year. Here's what it says, Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16. Here's what you've got to keep in mind. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I want to look at some of those words, and I think this will answer the question. Uh, first of all, just look at what we're being told to do there in verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. To come boldly means to come without hesitation and without reservation. It is an open invitation by the Lord Jesus to come to him, period. Now, why is it wide open that way? Well, he refers to himself in this passage as a high priest. And those of you who are Bible scholars, you'll know in the Old Testament, the high priest was the one who stood between God and man, mediated God's direction to the people. He was the one who stood in the place of the people, representing the people to God, representing God to the people. And when they sinned, he was the one that, that went through a very visual process of slaughtering the animal who died or paid a price for the sins of the people. And so this high priest had this, this role of interceding for the people and, and going to God on their behalf in spite of their sin. 
And he is our high priest. He's the one who went to the cross on our behalf and died for our sins. He's the one who continues to intercede for you and me now on behalf of the Father. He's always on our side. His whole purpose in coming and dying on the cross was to bring glory to his Father and bring us to his Father. And so he is our high priest. Now, what's significant about this passage is that he tells us something about Jesus that you and I must never forget. We have a high priest who can sympathize with us. And the word sympathize there is, is the basic English word sympathy, but in the original language means the same thing. It means to share the same feelings that we have. And so the Lord Jesus fully understands what you and I feel. Why? Because he has felt those things. Now, he never experienced guilt, but he certainly experienced temptation. And that's why it says, we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He felt that inward pull of sin. He, he recognizes how difficult it is for you and I to resist temptation. He recognizes the tragedy when we fall and when we fail and when we go ahead and sin. Now, I read a quote to you last week, I'm not going to read it again, from C.S. Lewis who talked about the significance of this verse, although he didn't reference it directly. When you and I resist sin for five minutes, we feel the pull of sin. But a person who fails and gives in after five minutes will never know the full weight of what it's like to resist sin for an hour. And the person who gives in after an hour is never going to understand the full weight and the power of sin involved in resisting sin for a whole day or a week or a month. And what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is Jesus felt that pull and resisted sin not for five minutes or an hour or a day, but for his entire life. He felt that pull and that weight. He fully understands the power of sin and the weight of sin in a human heart. He says that he can sympathize with our weaknesses, and then it talks about that we can find grace to help in time of need. So many times we think of our failures and our inadequacies as somehow something that disqualifies us from coming to the throne. What you need to fully understand from this passage is those are not things that disqualify you from approaching God. They are your qualifications. Your weaknesses, your failures, your needs, when you recognize them and, and you are concerned about them, repentant of those things, when you come to him, it qualifies you to come to him. It's the person who thinks they have it all together that are the least qualified to come before him. And so the word help, it come, we come to a throne of grace, he says, let us come boldly without hesitation or reservation. Come to a, a throne of grace. It's significant that's a throne because who sits on a throne? A king. And it's a throne of grace. And what do we get at this throne of grace? That we may obtain mercy. What's mercy? Mercy is me not getting what I should get. You understand that? Mercy is me not getting what I should get. So we find mercy and we find grace. Now grace is just the opposite of mercy. 
You say, you're confusing me. Well, mercy is God saying, you deserve this, but I'm not going to do it. So that's mercy. Grace is, you don't deserve this, but I'm going to give it to you. That's grace. And we find that in time of need. So when you and I feel our need, when we feel least qualified, least able to go before him, as this question, this person who posed this question said, I'm broken and I feel worthy, how do I approach the Father? That is your qualification to approach the Father, is when you are broken and needy. So let me summarize it, the answer in this statement. My brokenness and neediness qualify me to approach the Father in prayer. The very things I think keep me from him are the very things that can take me to him. Second question. How do you have peace in a decision that you have to make today for five years in the future? You ever been in that position where you had a big decision to make and you knew it had long-term consequences? How do you get a peace or have a peace about that? Well, first of all, what do we mean by the word peace? Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7 help us get a handle on this idea of peace. Here's what it says. Paul writes to the Philippians, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything. Now, by the way, how many things are we supposed to be anxious for? Nothing. How many things are you, it's okay for you to worry about? Zero. Nada. He says, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. So bring your request to Him. So what does that do? Well, you might feel anxiety, you might feel pressure, worry, need, but in, instead of just sitting there and crumbling, you take what you're experiencing and you bring it to the Father and you say, Lord, I need fill in the blank. I need relief. I need help. I need deliverance. Lord, I don't love you as I should. I need you to stir my heart to love you. I need, I need relief from the pressures we're experiencing in our home. I need help in my marriage. I need help with my kids. There are things that are out of my control, and oh God, I need you. And so we come to him, and we bring our request to him like that. Here's what happens next. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, that means it's, it's rational, but it goes beyond reason. It's not just an intellectual kind of peace that you know with your head. It surpasses understanding. It's supra-rational. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard, protect, garrison your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, in the Scripture, when the word peace is used, it's used in two different ways, and you have to look at context to figure out what it means. For example, in Romans 5.1, he says, uh, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. We have peace. And that's not talking about a peace that's experiential. That's talking about peace as a fact. Before Christ, you are separated from God. Your sins make you an enemy towards God. You have hostility, enmity, the Bible says, between you and God. And when you come and you trust Christ as your Lord and Savior... The war, as far as God is concerned, the war's over. And he's no longer against you. He's no longer at war with you. Your sin problem has been addressed by Jesus Christ, and we have peace with God. You have it. It is a fact. There is no longer a conflict between you and God. You are his child. Now, that's a fact. 
But then there's another kind of peace. And that's the peace that is experiential. The peace that we would call feeling. A peace, a peace that is more intuitive, has more to do with what we're experiencing than with what we're thinking. And there's a supernatural kind of peace that God offers to you and me that we can experience. So going to God with my request positions me to experience the peace of God, the experience of his peace. Now, now we want to answer the question. The question was, how do you get peace in a decision where the effect of it is going to last for years? How do you get peace in that? We have another passage to look at, Colossians 3, 15 and 16. Here's what it says. Colossians 3, 15 and 16. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Look at that first phrase. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. That word rule describes the very same activity that an official conducts at an athletic event, like an umpire or a referee. And, and they call the play as being safe or out. They call it as being correctly done or not being correctly done. And so the peace of God, this experiential peace, we are called or told to allow that sense of I am okay with this and I believe that God is right with this or my sense of dis-ease, this is not okay, I don't feel good about this, I can't tell you why, but intuitively in my heart of hearts, this is not working, this is not right. You say, that's pretty subjective, Don. You mean I'm just supposed to, to trust my feelings? And all the time we encounter decisions with huge consequences. People are asking, should I move or not move? Should I take a job or not take a job? Should I marry that man or that woman? What, 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 what should I do? And we take those questions very seriously because we know the long-term consequences of those decisions are big. They last for years. But you know what the truth is? Every decision has long-term consequences. Even the things that you think, you and I think are inconsequential can be watershed moments that can have impacts that last for years. And so we're called to let the peace of God rule in our heart. Now notice what follows in Colossians because it's almost as if the Apostle Paul knows that we're going to question this. And the very next thing he says is let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So on one hand I should let the peace of God rule in my heart but at the same time, I've got to let the Word of God dwell in me richly. So what does that mean? That means when someone comes to me and says, I have a peace about doing X, Y, Z, and it absolutely contradicts the Word of God, then I can say to them, based on the authority of God's Word, that, that the peace of God is always going to be subject to the will or the Word of God, and there's no way that that is a peace from God. It's not. A man comes to my office and he says, I don't love my wife anymore. Uh, I'm not happy with her. We're not happy together. And so I've prayed about it. 
And I believe that the best thing for us is that we separate and divorce, and I believe that's the will of God because I have a peace about it. I have a peace about it. And I can tell you that Ephesians 5.25, that husbands are told to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And so the picture there is Jesus Christ who held nothing back in his love for the church, gave his life for her, laid down his life for her, no matter what cost it was to himself. And he says, husbands, love your wives like that. There is no way God is going to give you a peace about leaving your wife. That's not from him. But at the same time, it's important that we have a peace from God and that our hearts be settled and that we know that God is leading us and God's word is a huge resource for us in that way. So the peace of God will never contradict the word of God. So here's the statement that I would like to share with you that answers that, that question. The peace of God is an inner experience. It is real. An inner experience of harmony with the will of God. When you know that you're in the zone, you know that you're doing what pleases Him and what honors Him. It's an inner experience of harmony with the will of God that flows from relying on God for protection and direction. Protection and direction. So ultimately our goal when we pray is to rest in Him. To come to him in such a way that I can unburden the load that I'm carrying and leave it with him. The peace of God that passes understanding, he says, will be mine. And then the, once I obtain that sense of God's leading and protection, I need to hang on to it. Keep it. Let it rule in my heart. It doesn't matter if the consequences of that decision last five years or five minutes. I need to approach it the same way. The last question is this for today. Do you believe that as a church, we are seeing prayers answered at the level we should? If not, why? Do you believe that as a church, we are seeing prayers answered at the level we should? If not, why? When I saw that question, I... um, I just, I need to approach this very carefully, and so I hope, I hope that you'll listen equally carefully when I talk about this. My response to that question, just as a brother, is no, I don't see our prayers answered at the level I think they should. And let me tell you why. Because not only in our church, but in countless other churches, The church is being defeated in countless areas. Let me give you two that I see. Now, there are more than this. But let me give you two, and this is where it breaks the heart. The two areas stand out. Area of major defeat, first one that comes to mind. Disintegrating marriages in too many of the homes that make up Wynn Baptist Church. Disintegrating marriages in too many homes that make up Wynn Baptist Church. And you may or may not be aware of it, 
but as you and I become aware that that is happening, there should be a sense of urgency. It should disturb you and me. It should bother you and me when we recognize that that is happening. Let me tell you another area. Another area that we experience are defeat. Dads, moms, grandparents, and I'm one of them, who are absolutely brokenhearted over the spiritual condition of one or more of their grown children. And their children may have been raised in church. They may have had, we joke about it, they may have had a drug problem where they were drugged to church every Sunday. And we wonder, with all the exposure that you gave them as a parent, how could it be that they could be indifferent to God or antagonistic towards God or struggling with dark addictions or just plain caught up in the pleasure rat race that the world system offers them? And we wonder, how can that be? The church, us, we need to surround and intercede on behalf of hurting marriages and hurting moms and dads. We need to be the church for people who are hurting. And we do for those sometimes that we know about, and there are so many others that we don't know about. And we desperately need to be about interceding for the brokenness in our church. In Exodus 17, the children of Israel are out in the wilderness. They have not yet entered the promised land. And a nation called Amalek, they're descendants of Esau. They're constantly harassing the people of God. They hate the people of God. And they come into an open conflict. And in Exodus 17, verse 11, listen to what happens during this battle between the people of God and Amalek. Listen. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun so Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And we have an enemy who is exponentially worse than Amalek. And he hates you, and he hates your family, and he hates this church. And his attacks are relentless. He does not sleep. His attacks are nonstop. And if left unchecked, if we do nothing in response to that, the trajectory of what's going to happen to this church and the church in North America 
is pretty grim if we just let it go. Moses understood, in contrast to what's happening to the church in North America, Moses understood that the battle involved more than soldiers and shields and swords, more than programs, more than pastors, more than buildings. Moses understood it was a battle in an unseen world that was dramatically affecting the world that we see. And the intercessory prayer is how you and I enter into that battlefield. I want to illustrate this um, using the analogy of an interception in football. So I want you to watch this. I think this is 2009 Super Bowl, uh, Pittsburgh Steelers versus Arizona, whatever they are, Cardinals, Rednecks, what are the Arizona people? (laughs) Anyway, they lost. This was Pittsburgh's sixth Super Bowl win at at, uh, Super Bowl 43. Watch how this game unfolded. Fourth quarter. Then came the most fateful moment of Super Bowl 43. 18 seconds left of the second quarter. First and goal, Arizona at the two-yard line. Steelers show blitz. He throws the pass up. It's going to be picked up. James Harrison has it. He's running up the sideline. 25-30, 35 Still on his feet at the 45. And down. No, he's still on his feet. Here comes Harrison jumping over people to the 20, the 15, the 10, the 5. And that's a touchdown for Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh was behind something like 20 to 4 going into the fourth quarter. And that turned the game around. The whole nature of an interception in a football game is that the ball is going one direction. The team is moving the ball one direction. And the trajectory of that ball, left unchecked, is going to keep going that direction. And so when the quarterback passes that ball, the intent is that it go to a receiver who's going to continue to carry it in the same direction, unless there's an interception. And when an interception occurs, someone on the other team gets in between the receiver and the ball, catches the ball, and he begins going the other direction. And it turns the whole momentum of the game. The whole trajectory of what was going to happen has changed. They thought they had it cleaned up. They thought it was done. They thought they had this, this game in the bag. It was one in the history books. They, they were wrong. There was an interception. And friends, that is exactly what happens when you and I practice intercession for people. Left unchecked, the trajectory of a marriage, the trajectory of a home, the trajectory of a a son or a daughter who is running from God, the trajectory of what's happening in a community, left unchecked, nothing will stop it. Nothing will stop it. And we're going to talk more about this question of if God is in charge and God already knows everything and God already has a plan, why do we pray? We'll look at that next week. But right now, you just need to understand that the whole nature of intercession, interceding for people, is that when we see the trajectory going one way in their life, that we step in and we turn it around. And God looks to you and me to enter into that kind of praying for other people. 
A marriage that is failing is restored. A spiritual runaway is returned home. The blind see and the lame walk and the deaf hear. And the prisoners are set free. Here's the final statement I want to leave you with. When God's people practice intercessory prayer, the trajectory of the battle turns from defeat to victory. When God's people practice intercessory prayer, the trajectory of the battle turns from defeat to victory. God has much more in mind for when Baptist Church than having a full house and whether we're all here at the same time. He has much more in mind than our attendance and our giving. He has much more in mind than how many Bible study groups we start and how many grow. He has much more in mind for his church than that. He wants you and I to experience spiritual victory and to turn around the trajectory of our community, of our region, the delta, of our nation. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to know that Jesus died on the cross so that you could come to the Father. But I want to speak to the saints, those of you that know Jesus. You, knew, you know you're a saint if you know Jesus, right? In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, in talking about spiritual warfare, at the end of the discussion on spiritual warfare, Paul says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. For all the saints. Do you know what that means? It means that every person sitting here needs somebody praying for them. Everybody needs somebody praying for them. And if that's going to happen at Wind Baptist Church, then you and I are going to have to step up and say, hey, I'm going to pray for you if you'll pray for me. <laughs> and I'm blessed. As your pastor, I know I've got people who pray for me. I've got people I pray with. I've got people who are faithful to do that. And everywhere I've been, ever since college, nobody told me I should do this, but I've always looked for a group of guys I could pray with. Always look for that. The Baptist building had a group of guys we prayed on Thursday mornings before work. They were my prayer partners for 10 years we prayed. Before that, in churches, ministries at Lifeway, when I worked at a publishing house, I had a group of guys I prayed with. When I worked as a bivocational minister for an engineering firm, I had a group of guys I prayed with before the office opened each day. Everybody needs somebody praying for them. Everybody. Who's praying for you? Who are you praying for? I don't know what's happening in your life, but the trajectory of your life can be dramatically affected if you've got some people who come alongside you and pray with you. So who do you need to be praying for? What do you need people to pray with you about? We're going to have a time of response here in just a moment. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to stand and sing.
But dear ones, if you need someone to pray for you this morning, your pastors are here. There are deacons here. There are deacons' wives and others that will pray with you. You come and kneel down at the steps. Someone will come and kneel beside you. And you don't even have to explain everything. You don't have to share everything that's going on. But someone comes to you or you go to them and you just say, pray for me. Pray for me. And how very much that honors the Lord and how very much that changes our hearts and how very much it changes the whole complexion of our church when we become a people who determine that everybody is going to be prayed for at Wind Baptist Church. Everybody. Nobody falls through the cracks. We're here for you. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare to respond to you and your word and what you have said to us through your word, may we be people who not only learn the truth about prayer, but we implement it in our life. and We begin to practice it daily crying out for our own needs, seeking your peace to rule and govern in our heart, coming boldly to the throne of grace, not only for ourselves, but also on behalf of people who are hurting, who desperately need to be lifted up. Father, as we enter this time of response, we pray that your Holy Spirit, like a massive cloud of life and truth, would descend on us and fill our minds and guide us in how we should respond to you. And may our hearts be tender before you, our King. Guide us as we respond to you now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.